Good morning, family. You know, I think you got enough preachers around here. You don't really need me to come. <laughs> I've been enjoying the preaching. This has been good. Well, I'm glad you all. Hey, let me, let me give you a testimony. Uh, Cornell encouraged me to, to give it to you. Um, we were at a minister's meeting together Thursday, uh, the CAM meeting, uh, which I'm a part of, uh, part of the leadership of that group. And, and I felt during the worship that we were going to do an ordination. Well, actually, Cornell was ordained at that time, but also uh, there was uh, another lady, Sylvia Williams and her husband, who are taking one of the churches, um, becoming the pastors in McCray, Georgia. And so we had all of them up front to be prayed for. And I just felt in my heart that there were two huge needs that were presented in front of us. And one was the, the, the Williams could not find a house in McCray. You know, McCray is about as big as a postage stamp. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know, they needed a suitable place to live in town uh, that would meet their needs. And so they were still looking. And they started, what, this Sunday, they started as pastors there in McCray. And so that was a huge need that everyone was praying for. And then, of course, the need here. They're, you're in a transition here, and whatever leadership needs to develop in this house or come to this house, that's a provision that the Lord has in his mind. And it was in my mind, it was in my heart, we as a body of a network of pastors and churches need to call this thing forth that's the will of God into this realm. And I think you all have been taught well enough to know that the words of our mouth, the decrees that are inspired by faith and inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the scripture that was coming to me, we call those things that be not as though they were. You know these verses. Well, there's a powerful principle in there I don't know that we operate enough in, you know. And so I was just stirred and so uh, I came up and I wanted to lead everybody in that. So I had everybody stand up because I wanted every voice that was a part of this network to speak the will of God forth. You see, this is why God put prophets in the earth. To speak his will. Even though they would never see it manifest for them, they were there on our behalf to speak forth the will of God on the earth. God needed somebody to agree with him on the earth, right? To believe and to speak. That's how powerful our words are. And so as this body began to pray and speak this forth, just about that time, actually I heard about it 24 hours later, they were signing over a home that was being donated to the church. Within 24 hours, a 2,700-square-foot house was donated to the church in McRae for a parsonage. And so, so Sylvia called me, and I was just hollering. I love it. What this is is a lesson for us. It is. It's a lesson for us that what we believe in our heart and say with our mouth shall come to pass. Did not Jesus teach us this very principle? And so, anyway, I was greatly encouraged. I'm sure the McRae Church is greatly <laughs> encouraged this morning. And I know the Williams are greatly encouraged this morning at that provision. And I, I appreciated the preaching that has already happened here this morning. You know, we have a part to play. And seeing the will of God come forth. we got battles to fight, but we've got declarations to make. Amen. So that's your, that's your third sermon for this morning. 
We'll, we'll do one more, all right? Let, let me give you a feeding that's been on my heart and in my mind. Uh, go with me to John chapter 8, and I will give you what I've been meditating on. You know, we're getting back to uh, ancient times when we scrolled the scriptures. See, we're, <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting back to the original. Now, let me get there. Uh, you know, I'm not used to a handheld, so doing all this with one hand is uh, challenging this old missionary. John. What's that? Duh. The old days when I used to scroll. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was back when, you know, I remember when the Dead Sea was just sick. You know, you know that old joke. <laughs> All right. <laughs> let, let, preceding chapter 8, let me, let me give you a setting for, for this story. And the story is about Jesus and the adulterous woman. And the setting is this, that Jesus' ministry has reached such a such a notoriety in, in the land of Israel. I mean, it was creating really a big mess, especially for the Pharisees. Uh, in, in verse 1 in chapter 7, it says, After these things, and what these things were, Jesus had, um, had fed the 5,000, which really was more than 5,000, you know, because that was just the men. So you're talking 10, maybe 15,000 people. This is how many people are believing in that Jesus is the Messiah and confessing him as Messiah. I mean, the, there's quite a stirring that Jesus has brought about in the years that he's ministered there in the land of Israel. And it says, uh, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. His ministry had created such a stir in the nation that this was a threat. It was a threat to the, the Jewish leaders because uh, they saw Jesus... Uh, ruining the stability of the nation and it was threatening their own positions when uh, they, they were afraid that the Romans would come and take their place and what that was referring to was the temple the Roman Empire allowed the Jews to maintain their religious tradition okay and uh, but they kept quite an eye on them uh, and th they were known to to go into rebellions and revolts against the Roman Empire. And so uh, the, the, uh, there was always, especially at festival time, there was always a, a strong Roman contingent there in Jerusalem uh, to keep a lid on these Jews, okay, because many a Messiah had risen up, many a, a, a revolution had started that they had had to put down. But now they have their temple. they got Herod's temple built, and things have been going along but now here comes another Messiah, and the Roman government was very aware that another so-called revolt leader had come forward. And so they had their, I mean, they had their own CIA. They were not ignorant of what was going on in Israel. And because the Jews believed that it was at Passover time, that's when their Messiah would show up and bring them out from underneath the rule of Rome. Because this Passover was the time that Moses... Uh, the deliverer 
came forward. And so it was always in that belief. As a matter of fact, there were military groups in the hills of Judea waiting for such a, a, a Messiah to come forth so they can join in the battle. I mean, this, this, is, this is some of the words of Josephus. So uh, this is the temperature of what's going on in Jerusalem, okay? And, and so Jesus was uh, stirring up a lot of controversy, and it was threatening the stability of the nation and the place that the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews had, so they didn't like him very much. And so they wanted to discredit Jesus, and so they were constantly, because Jesus was constantly challenging their authority, he was disregarding Jewish ritual law about washings, the Sabbath, eating with sinners, and so there was this big division in the nation. And uh, so the Pharisees' strategy to contain him was to discredit him. And so as you go through the Gospels, you see this war going on between the rulers of the Jews and Jesus. You know, uh, the Pharisees, you know, we... we uh, we, we, we love to talk about them and, uh, as these terrible group of people that were fighting against uh, the teachings of Jesus. Well, uh, they were continually testing him, trying to trick him to undermine his uh, moral authority as a prophet. They were accusing him. They would spread rumors about him. They lied about him. Uh, because if this strategy fails, they had a plan B, which was... To kill him. And now we're at this stage in this confrontation between the Jewish leaders and Jesus where they were, he wasn't willing to walk in Judea anymore because they were seeking to kill him. Uh, look over in verse 11 in, in chapter 7. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and they were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And now uh, when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And so you can see this division that begins to happen. Uh, look in verse 40 in chapter 7. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying uh, Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees. Uh, this certainly is the prophet. And others were saying, this is the Christ. Many others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ shall come, comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one could lay hands on him, okay? It was not yet his time. And uh, so you got the picture? This is, this is the setting. The Pharisees and the Jews had come to the end of, of just trying to discredit him, and now they wanted to kill him. All right, And they began to plot murder against Jesus. Now, uh, now we go to uh, the snare here in chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? As they were saying this, testing him that they might have grounds for accusing him. Okay, they're setting the trap up. Okay, I want you to imagine this scene. Um, this woman is 
in the arms of another man. It's still early in the morning. Jesus is just very early in the morning. He's teaching at the temple. And uh, so this woman and this man, and the door bursts open, and religious angry men grab her, and they drag this woman out of bed. And uh, in my mind, I see this scene like, you know, you see these radical Muslims that uh, are enraged against the infidels, you know, and, and they behead people. And, I mean, there's a religious fervor going on here as they dragging her out in the street. Adulteress, adulteress, stone her. And realize this is Passover time, so religious fervor is at a peak. Okay, there are pilgrims that have filled the city because they're there for one of the most important feasts of the year. And so religious fervor is just boiling over in the city. And so, but uh, they, they drag her out, uh, and I can just imagine this woman. She knows what's about to happen. She's about to get stoned. And this has to be just a terrorizing moment for her. Oh, my God, I'm going to be stoned. She knew what it said in the Scripture. The scripture, in, everybody in Israel knew that if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lays with the woman and, uh, sh- sh- uh, and the woman, the man that lays with the woman and the woman, so shall you purge the evil from Israel by stoning them. So she gets dragged out, but everybody asks, you know, where was, where's the guy? Where's the man? And, and most believe you know, this was a setup. You know, that the Pharisees and the Jews had set this up to set a trap for Jesus. And so they bring this woman down. In See, this woman, you know, she had to think in her mind, as she's getting dragged out of that house, she's not getting dragged outside the city, which is where she was supposed to be sown. She's getting dragged toward the temple. And she gets thrust right into the temple court, right there in front of Jesus. Okay? So the trap now is set, and, of course, you've, you've know this this teaching here here's here's the trap uh they want to know what are you going to do with this adulteress what does what this is what the law of moses said what are you going to do well if he refuses to condemn her he's then discredited as a true teacher and that he's speaking against the law of moses and he can be accused of heresy and so this is one way they can get Jesus out of the way. The other way is if he says stone her, then he contradicts all his teachings of mercy and forgiveness. And even worse than that, he would be in contradiction to Roman law because Roman law said you, that, that's the one thing Israel couldn't do, that's one thing the Jews couldn't do, is uh, capital punishment. They could not kill or murder anybody. That's why the Jews did, the, or I mean the Romans did the crucifixion. I think I said this right. If he refuses to condemn her is, is one part of the trap, and if he does condemn her. You know, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation going on here, okay? And, this, and they're thinking, we're going to get rid of Jesus here. This is going to put an end to this. Well, Jesus is smarter than them. <laughs> Glory to God. So here's the solution in verse 6. While they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him, Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote, on the ground. Now, I used to think that he was just buying time. You know, uh, you, you know, Jesus was tempted in everything such as we are, you know, just operating his own wisdom. But I always thought he was just doodling on the ground and waiting, okay, Father, what do you want me to do with this situation? You know what I mean? But that's really, the, the word here is grapha. He was actually writing words in the dust. 
okay? Now, there's, don't you wish there was a couple more verses in here that would tell you what he, was, what he was riding on the ground? And so there's all kinds of speculation that people, you know, somebody has said that he's riding the names of the, the Pharisees' girlfriends and mistresses, you know, on the ground. You know, we've heard all these things. Well, uh, I've got, before I get to what, he, what I suggest to you he was writing, let, let, me, let me show you something that, uh, that I've gotten from the land of Israel uh, by special order. It's, a, it's, it's one of my uh, most prized religious relics that I have at my house. And it's actual, this is an actual stone uh, that was used that day. Yeah, you can get them on the internet for about $500. I thought it was a good deal. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not that stupid. <laughs> okay, here's what, here's what Jesus said. He, when he heard it, uh, he, said, he said, when they persisted in asking him, you know, he had stooped down to write on the ground, uh, he straightened up and he said, he that is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, the one that was the accuser in any of these situations, it was the accuser that's supposed to throw the first stone. Okay, if, if you're accusing someone else and this person is guilty, that accuser is the one that throws the first stone. And then everybody else gets in the community gets stones and throws stones after the accuser. And the reason for this is because in this society, which was a vendetta society, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, uh, there would be revenge that might be taken by the tribe or the family of the person that's being executed. But if everybody in the community is participating in the execution, you know, you can't take on the whole community. And so this is how the stonings worked in the Old Testament. But somebody had to start the execution. And so Jesus says, okay, the one of you that is without sin, you be the first to throw the stone. And then he continued to, you know, he was giving the invitation. All right, who's going who's gonna to throw the first stone? And so he gets back down on the ground, and it says, he again stooped down in verse 8, and when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the women with the woman where he, she was in the center of the court. Well, okay, here's, here's, here's a thought I have. The Bible talks, there's a phrase, the finger of God in the phrase. You'll find it four times in the scripture. And you know that one of the first ones was when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. And so the law was written in stone with the finger of God. Okay, And we also find this verse in the New Testament where God has written his law upon our hearts, or, uh, you know, maybe that's a Jeremiah. He's written his word, he's written his law upon our hearts in the new covenant. And so, with the finger of God, the law is written, okay? Now, in my mind, if I put those things together, my speculation is a little bit more like this. Jesus is stooping down, and he is writing something, and writing something that would cause these Pharisees and these scribes to go, oh, I'm out of here. Imagine this. 
what if he's doing something like this? Looking up at one of the Pharisees or the scribes, and everybody can see him. He's writing, blasphemy. And he looks at another one. Murder. Thievery. And the conviction was a little bit too much because they themselves would be accused of scandal and lose their place. So they just left the scene, okay? <laughs> Jesus is pretty smart. It was, it was his uh, authority and his presence, I think, that was bringing a conviction upon them. And so the result was, you know, in these guys, perhaps this prophet is about to expose their sin next. And so they're out of there, okay? And so they leave the, sin, uh, the scene lest they end up in a scandal. And we see in verse 10, this is the part I like, straightening up, Jesus says to the woman that's been, I mean, imagine this woman. She is terrorized. She thinks these rocks are about to come down on her head. And then all her accusers disappear. And he says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Oh, those had been the sweetest words for her to hear. You know, what a change of scenery that the, from the terror of losing her life and then looking up the next minute and only finding the kindness of this man rescuing her from the situation. I mean, you know, you can keep digging in this and just work up all the emotion of this moment being dragged out of the house, screaming for her life, and then being rescued by Jesus. Now, this is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story to meditate. But what I want to do is I want to bring an application with this. Uh, and I want to ask this question. I just have three questions to ask. Number one, who is this woman? Who is this woman in the Scripture? Well, there's no name given. You see, you know, to the Pharisees, uh, she's not even a person. She was just a piece of bait, you know, to get the big fish was Jesus and uh, that was their concern they wanted to get rid of him but this story is included in the book of John uh, very graphically and uh, I want to give you an answer for that who is this woman this woman she's you <laughs> and she's me uh, she's all of us we've all been caught in sin and we are all just as guilty as if we were laying in bed with someone we shouldn't be laying in bed with. Just as guilty. Uh, because James chapter 2, verse 10 says this, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. So this places us all on the same moral level. We have all sinned, and the whole world is under condemnation. This is the simple gospel that we preach. I love it how it says in the scripture where it says there is none righteous. And then God goes on in, the, in Romans to say, no, <laughs> not one. It's because I think he'd argue with us or we would argue with him. You know, oh, but, well, what about Mother Teresa? No, not one. What, what, what about Billy Graham? No, not one. What about Brother Langston? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> All have
have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. So I deserve everything and more that this woman certainly was guilty of. Now, who are these Jews? All right, in this story, it's those narrow, judgmental, legalistic, religious Pharisees, the enemies of truth, the enemies of Jesus. They're dishonest. They're deceived. We just love to vilify the Pharisees, don't we? <laughs> we, re we really do. Uh, but let me give you the answer for today. They can also be us. The same condemning attitude can live in the heart of a self-righteous Christian. Those despicable Democrats or Republicans. <laughs> Those homosexuals, they're going to bust hell wide open. You see, we can have a self-righteous attitude, and, it's, and it's a, a self-righteous religion always has a rock in its hand to condemn someone they think is in a worse condition than they are. Okay? But the killing today is not done with stones. It's done with words. It's done with attitudes. It's done with gossip. It's done with slander. And when we can uncover the faults of others and see ourselves as more righteous than someone else. That's self-righteousness. <laughs> you know, that our behavior somehow has given us a better standing uh, okay, let me, let me confess my sins to you, okay? And then I'll let you confess yours to me, all right? <laughs> but I'll start. Uh, I, was, I was coming away from the post office. I was on my way to the post office one day. This is over in Dublin. And uh, I walked in the door, and there was a crowd, and it dawned on me, hey, it's, it's the first of the month. And so there was a different crowd in there than the every day getting to the post office to get your mail. And I went, oh, yeah. And then something began to stir in my heart, a self-righteous, <laughs> these free-loading so-and-sos and, you know, and, you know, all these attitudes, political attitudes that can arise in our hearts. And... Uh, so I got my mail, and I wasn't one block from the post office when the Holy Ghost nailed me, and he said, stop. He said that Bill Otten. He said, stop being disgusted with people. You know, he, he slammed me right there. And then the next day I was reading in the Scriptures where the uh, sinners and the publicans were drawn to Jesus, and Jesus was ministering to them. And he told the Pharisees that it is the sick that need a physician. And, and, the, and the Lord said to me again by the Holy Spirit, Bill, the very people that you're despising are the very people I'm drawing to myself. You're fighting against me here. And I realized the self-righteousness that was in my own heart. You see, uh, don't look at me so holy here, all right? There are always certain groups of people that sort of, Make you look down your nose at whether it's uh, 
It might be homosexuals. It might be gang members. It might be child abusers. It might be racial. It might. And we think we're better than. Our behavior gives us a better standing. No, your, your behavior doesn't give you any better standing with God than the adulteress. Are we, we know this, don't we? I can't improve on the standing I've got with God right now. Thank God. But you see, one of the things that he doesn't want in me is that self-righteous attitude because what Jesus was exposing here with the Pharisees was their hypocrisy. Which one of you is without sin? You throw the first stone. Well, he disqualified every one of them. And Jesus was the only one qualified to condemn this woman or rescue this woman. He was the only qualified one there. And so what he was doing is exposing something that he can't stand. He cannot stand religious hypocrisy. And that's, let me give you another word for hypocrisy. Pretending. I've seen a lot of pretending in church. Now, it can be Baptist pretending. It can be Methodist pretending. I've seen, I, I, I came in, in the charismatic movement. And I've seen a lot of charismatic, a lot of charismatic pretending. <laughs> I, I've had a lot of practice at it, believe me, I, I know how to do it. So these Jews can be us. And you know, today, like I said, we don't kill with stones, we kill with words and attitudes. And today it's kind of a national sport to throw dirt on somebody and blast it on the news or the tabloids and say, it's happening right now. I mean, if anybody watching the news this week, and we're coming into an election season, you're going to see a lot of dirt getting thrown around. We're better than that party, and this party, we're better than that party, and here's all, and we're just throwing dirt at each other because it keeps the spotlight off our own sinfulness. And we can point the finger at somebody else's. I was reading something a little while ago that said it's a dreadful thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of other sinners. <laughs> James says it this way, be careful lest we bite and devour one another. James says it like this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. That's uh, James chapter 2, verse 12. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. See, this Bible's real strong on this thing. Do not judge lest you be judged, or that, so that you will not be judged. So it's easier for us to see the evil in others while being blind to the evil in ourselves. And so the Pharisees were hypocrites. You know, I love this story where um, it was one of these families that only came to church on Christmas, you know, and, and Easter, you know. 
And uh, it was Easter Sunday morning, and they came in a little late, so there are no seats left in the house except on the front row. And so the ushers usher the family right down to the front row, and they've got a little toddler. They've got a little boy. That's, uh, and he's, this is one of the first times he's in church, and he's looking around. I mean, he's standing on the pew, and he's looking in the balcony, and the place is just packed with people. And he says, where, Daddy? Where? Where are all the hypocrites, Daddy? I don't see any hypocrites. It's like that guy uh, that said to the preacher, he says, I, I don't want to come to your church. And the preacher says, why not? He says, well, it's just full of hypocrites. He says, no, come on, you, you fit right in. <laughs> it, it's in our nature to be self-righteous. See, this is one of the things that goes to the cross is our own self-righteousness. All right. Oh, Jesus, help us. Now, let me ask that third question. You ready? I asked the first one, who's this woman? It's us. Who are these Jews? It could be us too. And who is this man? Who is this man that can undo the justice of this situation? I mean, he, he can't just dismiss God's judgment. He can't violate God's law. You know, it's, it says plain in the Scripture, the soul that sins, it shall die, and the wages of sin is death. A holy judge would never overlook any sin in his kingdom, or he would not be a perfect judge. How can Jesus free this woman and give her no penalty? How could he do this? You know, is Jesus being soft on sin here? No. He believed in the maximum penalty for sin. The answer is this, that sin was going to be punished. Jesus was going to take that punishment for her. It was already set up that he was going to die for this woman's sin, and that's what gave him the authority to forgive her. So this is why Jesus had authority to heal the sick and could give it to the disciples because, you know, it's like, it's like, putting stuff on a credit card, and you're going to come around and pay the bill later. Well, Jesus was putting her sin on his credit card, and he was going to pay for it when he came to Calvary. You see, and it was the same way he was going to take stripes one day, and because of that, on credit, he could give his disciples, go out and heal the sick, raise the dead, and I'm going to pay for it all when I take the stripes, when I go to the cross. That's what gave him the authority. And so he was the only one that could condemn this woman. He was the only one that could set her free. What he was giving her was mercy. He, Jesus, this man, was the mercy giver and the grace giver. Jesus was taking upon himself what she deserved and giving her the gift of grace. All right, I'm going to tell you a story. My boys, when they were just, I don't know, they were mischievous <laughs> boys <laughs> that day anyway, and they had given mom a hard time. They were doing something wrong. And so when dad came home, they were going to get their punishment. See, I, no one knows. See, I'm from a family of 16. My mom and dad had 14 children to keep in line. And I know 
the sound of a leather belt coming through nine loopholes on a pair of trousers. I know that sound, man, when my dad would come, come, to, come walking toward us like this. Man, man, we would scatter like roaches. You know, we knew what was coming. Well, my boys knew what was coming. All right, they knew. I said, boys, go up to your room. I'll be up in just a minute. So you never spank your kids in anger, you know. And so I, I went up, and we're going to have a little discussion, and then the punishment's going to come. The due punishment's going to come because I am a just father. You know, gee, think about this. I mean, I, I want to make sure that everybody understands this, and I, and I believe everybody does. God doesn't forgive your sin because he's nice. That's not why your sin's forgiven. Because God is not mean, but he's just. And so every sin has a penalty or he would not be a just God. If a judge today had ten murderers in front of him and five he sent to the electric chair and five he just said, oh, well, you all just go home and go on with your life, he would not be a just judge. Well, God the Father is the most just judge of all and Jesus is the most just judge of all. But he's the most merciful as well because he takes our punishment on himself. Well, anyway, I'm getting away from my story. So these two boys of mine, I had a little chat with them. They knew they did wrong, and, and you, they were already, you know, <laughs> they knew what was coming, man. You know, they were getting emotional. And so I had them kneel by their beds, and, and in their room, they, they each had a single bed on either side of this room. And I said, okay, kneel down. And, and so they were kneeling down on the bed like this, and I took my paddle. And I, and they were all ready. <laughs> and I took that paddle, and I swung, and I stopped just an inch from their little tails. And I did the same to Nathan, my other son. And then I said, boys, sit up. And they were already in tears, and I said, I want to teach you about something. I want to teach you about mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting you what you don't deserve. That's a gift. And that's the difference between the two. And so that day I taught my boys a real good lesson on God's mercy. You didn't get what you deserved. But he just didn't give you mercy. He also gives you a gift. He gives you grace. He gives you his righteousness. And that's what he did for this, this woman. He gave her mercy, and then he said, go and sin no more. He was offering her the gift of repentance. She could start a new life from this point. She was given a standing of righteousness, which comes by faith and by believing and not by her behavior. But that grace will lead her into proper behavior. It will empower her for proper behavior. Go and sin no more. Go live a different life now. You have been freed from your shame, freed from your past, freed from the penalty of sin, and now I empower you with my grace. My very life comes into you that you might live a new life. That's the gift of grace. And that's what we've been given, thank God. I, well, there was a song that said, I am the one who's been forgiven much. So mercy rescued her. And now she can possess a new identity through grace. A right, this is a good point here. A righteous walk, then, is built on the power of grace, not on the fear of the law. 
when he's saying, don't, don't do this anymore uh, because they'll stone you. No, no, <laughs> it was a little worse than that. <laughs> uh, it, there were eternal matters at hand here. Uh, when he says, go and sin no more. He's, see, repentance oftentimes is something that doesn't get preached enough today. <laughs> so she's offered grace. Let me, let me tell you one more story here before I quit this morning. Um, that has to do with repentance, and it has to do with this work of God in our lives when we receive amazing grace, and we have. Everybody in this room, we have received a wonderful gift of mercy. We have. But did you notice that this mercy, this grace, can be taken for granted? Where we can give ourselves license. You know, grace is not a license for sin. And, and if the attitude is, well, you know, uh, if you give in to temptation with the thought, ah, God will forgive me. That's not repentance. It, it is repentance that God empowers and God, not, not just a, that confession, but a repentant heart. And so oftentimes a believer can get soft on sin and take sin lightly. But I'm telling you something, it's still poison. You know, it's, you know it, it isn't like Farmer Brown, when Farmer Brown is praying to God, and Farmer Brown says, Oh God, please forgive me, I've stolen five bales of hay from Farmer Green. No, 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 make it ten, I'm going back for five tomorrow. <laughs> That's not repentance. That's not a changed heart. He's not turning around. You see, now, uh, I have a book here. This is a classic. Anybody ever read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God? Ah, it's, it's a, I mean, he, he's, he's on the Calvinist side, but he, he's just a, a wonderful writer. And, it, and he was a professor. He's a theologian. And, uh, and he had a, you know, a, a seminary class, and he said, Our tendency to take grace for granted was powerfully demonstrated while I was teaching college students. I had the assignment of teaching a freshman Old Testament course for 250 students at a Christian college. On the first day of class, I went over the course assignments carefully. My experience taught me that the assignment of term papers required a special degree of explanation. This course required three short papers. I explained to the students that the first paper was due on my desk by noon the last day of September. No extensions were to be given except for students who were physically confined to the infirmary or had deaths in the immediate family. If the paper was not turned in on time, the student would receive an F for the assignment. The students acknowledged that they understood the requirements. The last day of September, 225 students dutifully handed in their term papers. 25 students stood quaking in terror full of remorse. They cried out, oh, Professor Sproul, we're, we're so sorry. We didn't budget our time properly. We didn't make the proper adjustment from high school to college. Please don't give us an F. Oh, please, please give us an extension. He said, I bowed to their pleas for mercy. All right, I said, I'll give you a break this time. But remember, the next assignment is due the last day of October. The students were profuse in their gratitude and filled the air with solemn promises of being on time for the next assignment. 
Then came the last day of October. 200 students came with their papers. 50 students came empty-handed. They were nervous, but not in panic. When I asked for their papers, again, they were contrite. Oh, professor, it was homecoming week. Besides, it was midterm, and all our assignments were due in all the other classes. Please give us one more chance. We promise it will never happen again. Once more, I relented, he said. Okay, but this is the last time. If you are late for the next paper, it will be an F. No excuses, no whining. F. Is that clear? Oh, yes, professor, you're terrific. And spontaneously, class broke out singing, Oh, we love you, Professor Sproul. Oh, yes, we do. Okay. I was Mr. Popularity. Can you guess what happened on the last day of November? That's right. 150 students came with their term papers. The other 100 strolled into the lecture hall utterly unconcerned. Where are your term papers, I asked. One student replied, oh, don't worry, Prof. We're working on them. We'll have them for you in a couple days. No sweat. I picked up my lethal black grade book and began taking down names. Johnson, do you have your paper? No, sir, came the reply. F, I said, as I wrote the grade in the book. Maldini, do you have your paper? Again, no, sir, was the reply. I marked another F in the book. The students reacted with unmitigated fury. <laughs> they howled in protest, screaming, that's not fair. I looked at one of the howling students. I said, Lavery, you think it's not fair? Yes, he growled in response. Oh, I see. It's justice you want. I seem to recall that you were late with your paper the last time. If you insist on justice, you'll certainly get it. I'll not only give you an F for this assignment, but I will change your last grade to the F you so richly deserved. <laughs> the students were stunned. He had no more argument to make. He apologized for being so hastily, hasty and suddenly was happy to settle for one F instead of two. The students had quickly taken my mercy for granted. They assumed it. When justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock, and they were outraged. This, after only two doses of mercy in the space of two months. You see, we have that tendency. We live in grace. We live in the mercies of God every day. But God's attitude towards sin has not changed. <laughs> and the walk of repentance is still ours. I don't care what some hyper-grace teachers say. Repentance is a daily thing that we walk in. And if we find ourselves, we cannot assume the mercy of God. God is not obligated to show mercy to anybody. We, and we cannot assume upon it, you see. So uh, that's enough for today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sin is still poison it still kills it still hardens the heart it still deceives the soul and Jesus said though I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly and here's Jesus exhortation to us to be like him to be merciful as God is merciful see there are groups that don't seem quite as holy as you you're assuming that your position 
based on your performance is any better than theirs. When God says our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags, what we got was the gift of righteousness. We, we were like beggars that found bread, and now evangelism is telling other beggars where we got it. We don't point our finger. Okay, you got the idea. And here's what Jesus says, and it's strong in the Bible. Forgive the debts of others as we have for, been forgiven. Wherever mercy is removed from Christianity, we're left with heartless hypocrisy. We end up being Pharisees. And so my exhortation to you, and, and we'll just, we've had enough teaching today, uh, is be merciful this week. <laughs> the whole world is throwing mud at each other this week. All right? And you can see it. It's going to happen for the next 30 days. It's going to be pretty nasty. All right? Uh, don't be looking down a self-righteous nose at anybody, any group, any sinner, because we were in the same shoes. See? And all we've done is we've received a free gift. And I think we can all thank God for that free gift. Let's thank him right now. Jesus, we're so grateful that you took on our sin, that you paid the penalty for our sin. So we're so grateful. And Lord, when we see you operate like this, it's, it recalibrates us to be merciful even as you are merciful, to forgive even as you forgive, and to not have a self-righteousness, but to live in your righteousness. And so, Lord, we want to be those people that extend mercy to those around us and people that do not throw stones with our attitudes, our eyes, or our hearts, or our words. Uh, we ask for your mercies and your graces to continue to us. Amen. Now, if you need mercy today, <laughs> anybody else need I'm glad these mercies are new every morning. Uh, it's available to you. I don't care what you stumbled into or fell into this week. God mercy is new to us every day. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, le Brother Langston has already given us a lot of ministry uh, and leading us in ministry, but after the service is complete, uh, if you have need of prayer, uh, the elders and the ministers here will be happy to pray for you. Any needs you got this week, and you go forth in Jesus' name as mercy givers. Amen. Amen.